Thanks so much, Jan. <clears throat> and uh, the clear take-home message from that is that church always has to end with food. <laughs> is that right? I just thought I'd throw that in. What a, what a great story. Uh, that's amazing, that story. There is so much in it. And... Um, uh, I, I want to help us. I want us to think about it. And there's, this is what I want us to think about. Um, I say all the time that our goal as a church is to do two things, right? We need to connect with God. And we need to learn to lead truly great lives. That's the, that's the purpose of church, right? That's, that's what we're here to do. And when we come to this story, I think we're going to see... Uh, I, I, want, I want to advance the f- a following hypothesis or suggestion for us. And we're going to have to think a bit about this. And the, the suggestion is this. It's very, very clear in this story that as, as I connect with God... I actually learned to live a great life. That there's a, there's a feedback loop, right? The deeper my connection with God, the more transformed my life will be. The more transformed my life will be, the deeper my connection with God will be. That's how it works. And we're going to look at that and, and think about how that works. And the way I'm going to do this, and it may not work, so feel free to say to me, this isn't working. You're wrong. It's okay. I might be. I don't think I am. The way I'm going to do this is take the story of Scripture and, uh, and I'm going to add in some science. And the science I'm going to add in is uh, the science of what's called attachment theory. And I'm just being very explicit about this up front so you all know. No one can say, Mark, you're importing psychological categories into this. Yes. There's a whole science of how we live and work and flourish together as human beings, what it means to be alive. And this burgeoning science of attachment theory, following on from a, a, key, philosoph- a key psychologist called John Bowlby, um, is being supported uh, in, increasingly in the research and in the practical applications in, in marriage and family therapy and so on. And uh, it, it just beautifully supports what we see in the Bible about how human beings work and what God's plan for our lives is. And at one level, that is exactly what we'd expect. If Christianity is true and describes truly the nature of underlying reality, then it will fit with science to the extent that science also is trying to unpack and understand the nature of underlying reality. Does that make sense? They're, they're coming at it from two different points of view. So this is a, a, a meta-discussion of here's reality, right? It just makes sense. Here's the reality, and uh, science is trying to grapple with that reality, and guess what? Um, so does the Bible. The Bible describes that. And you would think that if they both are connecting with that reality, they're going to be in great harmony, and they're going to be because they're singing off the same song sheet. Does that make sense? Okay, now why is that important? Because uh, what, what I want to do is show how if we really believe this story and if we connect with the God who we encounter in the story, it sets us up to flourish 
And it fits beautifully and we can learn from and meshes with everything we learn out of attachment theory. And it's going to enrich our marriages, our friendships, our parenting, and our ability to be, to function and flourish in the world as human beings. Okay? Make sense? Let's have a crack at it. Okay, now, so the first thing we've got to do is we've got to look at this text and we've got to go, okay, question number one. Uh, in this, what kind of God is there in the world? that we are to connect with. Okay, so if we say we want to connect with God, the question is, what sort of God do we connect with? Okay, so let's have a think about this. Uh, the assumption of Christianity is that the place we most clearly see God is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God taken on the form of humanity, come to us in a way that we can understand and connect with and, and grasp, okay? So if you want a picture of what God is like, the Bible's full of this, but it comes into great focus and clarity in the, in, in the life and the person of Jesus. So uh, let's think about this together. What do we see about God in this story? Here's the story. He's walking along. We just heard it read. And uh, crowds everywhere. Um, he's become famous. People are being healed. Jairus, who's a high-profile uh, synagogue leader, his daughter is dying. He comes and he begs Jesus. He says, please, won't you help? My daughter's dying. What does Jesus do? Jesus went with him. That's pretty cool. So, you see how complicated this is? Okay. What else do we see then? So, then he's, he's going off to go and, you know, heal this girl. And then what happens? Well, this, this woman comes along. And uh, she's been uh, subject to bleeding for 12 years. So, she, uh, there is some kind of uh, gynecological disorder. So, she has been uh, bleeding for 12 years. And she has gone to all the doctors around, spent all her money. She's broke, right? Um, and here's the thing about this. And you, you may or you may not know this, but um, in Jesus' world, a woman who was menstruating was ritually unclean, which meant you couldn't touch her. If you touched her, uh, you became ritually unclean. If you were ritually unclean, you couldn't socialize with religious people. You couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go to synagogue. You were, you were a religious and a social outcast for the time of your uncleanness. Now, this was applied to um, uncleanness of this form was connected to any kind of you know leaking wound, um, any kind of uh, ejaculation of semen, sort of any sort of loss of the life fluids understood broadly. Um, and there's another whole talk about why that is the case. But in this woman's case, 12 years. So what does that mean for her? Well, 12 years of radical disconnection and isolation. And she's, she's, she's now broke because... The need, her need is so great, and she comes to Jesus, and she just goes, I, gotta, I know he can do something for me. I've tried everything else. I'm at the end of my tether. Um, and, I just, and she grabs, touches hold of Jesus. And uh, what happens? Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. 
That's pretty amazing. Um, and then Jesus at once realizes that power, energy has gone out of him. He turns around and says, who touched my clothes? Which is a little like it's, uh, you know, he's being jostled by crowds all the time. But there's something that released the power in Jesus to go out into her. And what was that? What released the power from Jesus? Faith and love and the woman's need. The woman's need. So she brought her need to Jesus and she was broken and an outcast and there's a spontaneous outflow of healing power from the creator of the universe to this woman. Um, who touched me? Jesus keeps looking around to see, see who'd done it. And eventually the woman, knowing what happened to her, comes and falls at his feet. She's terrified, right? Why? Why do you? She was unclean to start with. Like for an unclean woman... To touch a rabbi, a healer, a high-status man was a terrible offense. She's terrified. What, what, why, why else might she be terrified? I mean, imagine. So she's just been healed. But now, maybe she's just going to have her sin and her wrongdoing exposed again. And maybe the healing will go because God's going to judge her again. And it's going to be, oh, no, it's all going to, I'm going to lose. The magic's going to disappear. And there's shame, right? I mean, deep, deep shame around this. I mean, you know, and in all cultures, menstruation is often associated with shame. And certainly very true here. And here's this woman. And it's now, now she's going to be dragged up in front of the healer and going to have to tell her story. And she's done something that was wrong. And it might all go absolutely pear-shaped again and it's going to be terrible and so she's terrified and she tells him the whole truth and he says to her daughter your faith has healed you uh, go in peace and be freed from your suffering <sighs> and then he keeps on going um, and the, the uh, he's on his way to the Jairus's house and some of his people come and say, listen, your daughter's dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. There's nothing he can do. And Jesus listened in and he said, don't worry, just believe. Just believe. We'll just wait and see. Well, yes, the story isn't over yet, people. So uh, he gathers his close little inner group. Peter, James, and John is like his close buddies, his, his squad. And uh, they come to the home and there's a big commotion. And people are crying and wailing loudly. Um, it was a culture of the day. You, you had uh, professional mourners. It still happens in some cultures today. You pay people to come and mourn. Um, it's outsourcing the grieving process. I mean, people were obviously upset as well. But, but if you were a high-status person, like the bigger the grieving, the bigger the commotion, the kind of the more honoring it was to the person who was grieving. So there's probably a whole bunch of paid mourners there. There's weeping. There's wailing. And, um, and he goes and he goes, what's all this commotion? Why are you wailing? And they, the child's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laughed at him. I, li I like that. Just as an aside, by the way. Um, um, isn't it funny that Christianity worships a God who's happy to be laughed at? Have you ever thought about that? 
just go, that's fascinating. I just, like every religion is often terribly serious and terribly, and, and God is beyond and above and great and powerful and distant and to be feared. And the God that we see in Jesus is a God who makes himself so human and so vulnerable that he's actually quite willing to tolerate people laughing at him. I go, that's and scorning. I just go, that's pretty cool. I don't know what it does. So then he, he takes them, takes her by the hand, says, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. It's in Aramaic, so um, there's a translation provided for us and for the original readers who would have been reading in, uh, in Greek, probably. And uh, immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around, and they were completely astonished, rightly so. They knew that people died, they stayed dead. You didn't just... Yeah, this doesn't happen every day. We sometimes, as modern people, we read this and we think, oh, well, of course, this sort of stuff happened all the time back then. Well, no, no, it didn't really. Um, and he gives them strict orders not to tell anyone about this. And the reason for that becomes clear as we read through the story of Mark's gospel. And he feeds her. Okay. So what do we see about God there? Let's pretend that's not a rhetorical question. I have some, some ideas, obviously. Um, but what else? Just as you read that story, what's some things that strike you? If that, if that story is God, the creator of the universe, walking around the world, what do we see about him? He stops. Yeah. He stops. That's right. Yeah, what else? Empathy. Yep. Powerful, yeah. Isn't this great? I get you to do my work for me. What else? Sorry? He's humble. What you were saying, I was humble. But, uh, getting you to shit. But, uh, he forgives. Yeah. Beautiful. What else do we see in that story? He meets our needs. Yeah. Uh, meets him. Yeah. Beautiful. He cares. Yeah. He really cares. Yeah. And that's part of that, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, who the people were that were connecting with him. Yeah, so Jairus, high-status synagogue ruler, woman who was a complete outcast. So how would we say that? He's egalitarian. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It wasn't a loaded word at all. Um, he's inclusive. How about that? That's a more... He's inclusive. He's radically inclusive. Because you know what? I mean, different... It's interesting. I, this is a... A profound thing about this in our humanness uh, we tend to there are those on the kind of maybe the right who, who'd like to associate with the people who've made it in life for high status um, you know they're the people you're, you're with and then there are others who kind of philosophically or culturally um, I go well no I turn away from the rich and we're just about the poor and the marginalized and the vulnerable and actually God says uh, you know he's there for everyone it's beautiful, yeah. 
So I want to do a thing with you. I want to summarize this, and uh, here's where the attachment theory comes in, right? Um, and I've got to figure out now just how to add a page here. Um, you can summarize this beautifully. The God we discover here, you can think about in an acronym of R, that God is um, accessible, isn't he? He is so radically accessible to humanity. And that's the point around the inclusiveness. He's accessible to Jairus, the guy with power, and he's accessible to a woman who is a complete outcast. He, God is accessible. He... Ah, exactly right. A little girl who's dead. That's right. I was, you jumped right ahead of me. He's accessible because the only person who's less the only person who's lower status than the menstruating woman is a dead girl because guess what touching dead people also made you unclean right so you wanted to avoid touching anything that was dead because that could also make you separate from god and god is accessible even to a dead girl and her family it's amazing Um, God is accessible. He's, and accessibility uh, answers the question that we all have about everyone else all the time, which is this, um, can I reach you? Uh, the, as human beings, we are made for connection. We are deeply, profoundly, massively social beings. That's who we are. And we're hardwired all the time to be scanning the world and, and scanning our relationships to see uh, if we can connect. Because disconnection is death, right? What, what is the real problem behind the woman who is menstruating? It's her disconnection. I mean, physically, she's managed to survive 12 years, so at one level her body's kind of doing okay-ish, but it's the social and the spiritual disconnect, the isolation, the being cut off. That's the problem, right? Uh, what's the pro and, and what's the problem with death? Well, death is the ultimate disconnection, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure most of us here have known someone close to us who's died. And the terrible thing about death is... No matter how hard you try and want them to come back, you can never get them back. That, you can never have that conversation again. You can never make right what's gone wrong. You can never say sorry or thank you or please. It's, it's this brutal, irreversible severing and disconnection of relationship. And, and so that's, that's death. Disconnection is death. Connection is life. And so all the time for us to go through life, we are looking to find accessible people. Can I reach you when I need you? Can I reach you? That's true with all our relationships. Let me tell you, if you're married today, uh, you know, you will, your partner and you will be in a dance all the time of accessibility. Can I reach you if I'm, if I'm hurting, if I'm stressed, if I'm in trouble? Can I reach you? It'll be true for your friendships. 
Let me make another suggestion. It's true in this group, in this room right now. You came into this room and as you're walking in, your, your brain, your heart, your soul is scanning the room and what you actually want to know is the answer to this question. Can I reach you? Are there people here that I can reach? Are you accessible to me in my need and in my vulnerability? And at the heart of the universe, in this story, we see that there's a God who is unimaginably accessible to us and not just if you're religious and good in fact that's the problem we sometimes think we think well God is only accessible to those people who've got their stuff together and this story tells the absolute opposite story God is accessible to people who are in enormous agonizing fatal need if God is accessible to uh, the woman who is bleeding for 12 years, if God is accessible even to Jairus in his status and to Jairus' daughter, I think he's accessible to us as well. That's what it says, right? And by the way, here's the thing. If we know that we can reach God, he's accessible to us, it takes some of the terror out of the question of can I reach other human beings because we need it like if I'm if I can't reach anyone I'm that's death right but if I know there's a God who is always accessible then then I can deal with the disappointments and the terror and the fear of like human beings sometimes not being there for me uh, but we're going to get to that in a little while the R uh, is um, responsiveness And that's the question, um, can I rely on, well, that's, <laughs> that's not rely, so you might be accessible, but can I rely on you to respond, are you actually when you encounter me in my vulnerability, in my need, in my brokenness, are you actually going to pay attention? Are you actually going to give me the time of day and listen? And that's why, um, you know, when, when we're doing the little sharing before, Paul said, you know, God stops. And then he goes with her. Like, there's a God who's accessible and then who responds, who sees Jairus's need and goes with him. And then he sees the woman's need and, and we don't know why, but like I really believe there is at the very heart of God an, uh, an automatic outpouring of his power and love towards human need. That's what we see. He's that responsive. Why do I say that? Because the, how does the Bible define God? It says God is love. Like God is love. That, that is the very essence of God is love. So, uh, and love is a response to another person's needs. God never, ever, ever in the Bible walks by on the other side. Right? No, he never does that. 
It's very interesting. There's a... He responds. The E... Oh, and by the way, um, in our relationships, what we need is an affirmative answer to that question. When I come to you as another human being with my needs, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your church, um, as you might be accessible, so we're all here in this room, but will you respond to my need? Can I rely on you? Yeah, and that's, that's hard, right? Like, can I rely on you to actually respond? In the words of... So John Gottman, a marriage therapist, and again comes out of the same school of attachment theory, says when, when someone comes to us with our need we, or a bid for connection, we either, um, we either ignore them or we turn towards them or we turn away from them. Those are really the only three options. And uh, turning towards someone when they present their need is, is responding. And what we see in God is he never turns away from us. He never ignores us. He always turns towards us. If we're to flourish in relationships, if you want your marriage to work, your family to work, your parenting to work, if we want our church to work, we need to be a people who are accessible and then responsive to each other. We turn towards each other with our bids for connection. When someone presents brokenness and vulnerability and need to connect, we turn towards them. We respond. And we can do that, again, if I know that God will always turn towards me and respond to me, then I, I, two things happen. I can have the courage to be vulnerable in asking you for help. Because I know even if you let me down, God never will. So that frees me up paradoxically, knowing that God responds to me. I actually have the courage then to be vulnerable and turn to you. That's on the side of asking for help. But on the side of giving it, if I know that God is always responding to me, I can have the courage to turn to you, even if I feel a little broken and battered and in need of love myself. I don't have to wait before, to feel loved by you before I can love you, right? I, can, I know I'm loved, so I can respond. And 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 I can respond. <laughs> Because that's love. That's what should happen, right, in our families, in our community, in our church. And the last thing is um, engagement. Uh, that is... Um, <laughs> will you value me and stay close or and stay with me? That's the other question that drives us that, that we, and, and inspires terror in us if it's not met. So the question we're always asking is, okay, you're accessible, you've turned towards me, but, but will you be there for me? Will you come with me? Will you journey with me? And again, you see this in Jesus. He goes with them. He he, as it were, rolls up his sleeves and is immersed in the life and the mess of these people. And of course, that's what we'd expect. The Bible ends with this promise. Jesus, the last thing Jesus says to his disciples in the book of Matthew, another gospel story, the last thing he says is, hey guys, go into the world, tell everybody about me, 
and I'll always be with you. I'll always be with you. That's the promise of God. That's the very heart of Christianity. We encounter a God who is accessible to us, who's responsive to us, and then says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll always be with you. My um, 91-year-old Jewish grandmother came to faith in, in this Jesus as God. And it changed her life. The last four years of her life, she was transformed because she was no longer alone and scared. Just terrified as a Jewish refugee, left Germany in 1938, lost everything, lost everything, just loss after loss after loss, aloneness, fear of rejection. She always wanted to go to church but was terrified the Gentiles would reject her and she wouldn't be good enough. So eventually, I, when she was 91, I took her to church in a little town in Veve in Switzerland. And this, this little church community just loved her, embraced her. And she found people who were accessible, responsive, and then engaged and walked with her the last four years of her life. And at the heart of it, she found a God who was accessible to her, a little, a little 91-year-old Jewish you know, refugee from the Holocaust who was scared and alone and feisty and brutal <laughs> and who was responsive to her and were engaged with her in the church and her God engaged with her. She was baptized, she was confirmed, and she died at peace because she found this Jesus. Isn't that incredible, hey? That's the heart of it. And we need that. You know, we need, we need to know a God who is engaged with us. And again, if I know that God is with me, then it starts to give me the power to be with you and to give you the power to be with me even when I'm disappointing and even when you're disappointing. God with us. It's no surprise that that's one of Jesus' names, Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. The, the questions that we come to with God and with other people are the same two questions. Are you there for me? Are you with me? Are you there for me? Are you with me? You can actually think about almost every interaction you have with another human being. We have the surface interactions, but underneath every surface interaction, we're actually asking those two questions. Uh, and I'll write them up just in case you can't remember them because they're complicated questions, you know. Uh, these are the two questions that are the questions underlying every interaction we have. Are you there for me? Are you with me? So uh, let, let me give you an example. You um, just at a very simple level, uh, you walk into church here. Some, you've all done that, okay? So we've all got in here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've, you know uh, uh, Jan and B were on the welcome desk and you walked in and, and, and you made a bit of chit-chat. But, you know, underneath the chit-chat, you know what you're really asking? As you look at Jan and B and you look at all the people in this building, you're saying, will you be there for me if I need you? And, and will you be with me? 
That's what you're asking. I mean, it, 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 not with enormous force, because we're just a church, right? But, but let me tell you, in your marriage, right, when you, when you have a fight, I, I know, who knows, maybe some marriages fight, I don't know, people, it just happens. I'm told, not in this community, none of us ever fight in our marriages here, but in other, in, in other you know, lesser communities, people fight in their marriages, right? And, and maybe you have a fight, and maybe it's because, I don't know, maybe you didn't unpack the dishwasher or mow the lawn or do the shopping or do the folding and maybe your partner feels that they're carrying an undue burden I, the, just I'm imagining something I and no personal experience of this at all um, but I've heard that people fight about this and when you, when you fight about the jobs yeah, and they need to be done right what you're really asking is, you know, um, hey, Mark, when, when you don't do what you said you'd do and unpack the dishwasher and mow the lawn, it makes me feel scared because I don't know that you're really there for me and that you'll be with me. That's what's really... I mean, you know, obviously you just want the jolly lawn mode and I'm not, you know, that's okay. But there's an emotional question underneath it, right, all the time for all of us. And it's there. And, and here's the beauty about God. When you come to God, you're here in church, you're, you're reading your Bible, you're trying to figure this stuff out, you're asking those two questions of God just as much as you ask them of everyone else. Are you there for me, God? Are you with me? Can I actually trust you? Are you accessible? Are you responsive? Are you engaged? Terrifying, really, at one level. Now, here is um, when you when you feel the f- the panic or the fear or the struggle around these questions, and normally they come normally in the normal scheme of things in our marriage. When I fail to do what I said I'll do, like unpack the dishwasher, it's actually not a train smash. It's just a little, you know, we make, you know, oh, I'm sorry and blah, blah, blah. And I am and, and I'm selfish and it's okay and, and it goes and we deal with it because there's, there's no great crisis. But there comes times in all of our lives when we go through crises and difficulties and under great stress and, uh, and we reach out to God and we reach out to others. And then there's really, um, how are we doing for time? Three ways. Three ways to reach out. When you ask these questions, when you come into church or you come to God or you you come to your marriage partner or your kids, there's only three things you can do. One, you can just reach out. You can just, in vulnerability, present your need. That's what Jairus did. He just came to Jesus and he said, Ah, help! And that's what the little, that's what um, the woman, the menstruating woman did. She just came to Jesus. She didn't, she just, it was just her, her raw, vulnerable need. Okay, as you reach out, that's the healthy way to connect. It's terrifying, it's scary, because what happens if I reach out? And what if I'm rejected? What if God isn't there for me? That's, that's all true. Uh, there's another way that we try and deal with this need for connection. Uh, and uh, you don't see this particularly much, but it's uh, in, the, in this story, it's anxious demanding. Um, 
and the anxious demanding is, I'm scared that you aren't accessible, that you aren't responsive, that you aren't engaged. I'm scared that you aren't there for me and you won't be with me. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be, that makes me feel scared and anxious. So I come to you and I keep asking. And, and the way I can ask, funnily enough, has the emotional effect of punching your partner in the face. You know, like you don't literally do it, but you're, you're, you're demanding. So you, you have all these tests and you pursue them. And how that works with God is you turn to God when your life's a mess. And, and then you, you beg God to fix you and to sort you out. And then he doesn't, and it doesn't come through for you right now. And so you get all anxious and demanding and you whinge and you complain. Uh, and then you go, oh, God's just abandoned me and I've got nothing more to do with God. And you rush off in a huff. How many of you recognize that from your own relationships? <laughs> That's a pattern, right? Uh, anxious, demanding. Yeah, well, no, no, no. It's, it's very different from just reaching out to God in calm non-anxious trust it's very different from reaching out to other people we can do that in churches we can do that in schools we can do that in our workplaces we can do that in our marriages anxious demanding you've got to be there for me you've got to be there for me you've got to fix me because i'm really 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 terrified that you might not be there for me and you might not be with me and i might be left lonely and alone and that's death and i know that uh there's a that's not a comfortable way so some of us do that uh, the other uh, way of relating uh, is avoidant distancing. And that is, you know, the fear of uh, the anxious demand. I don't anxiously demand. So when I'm confronted by my fear of being alone and you not being there for me, what do I do? I don't really need you anyway. Ah. Ah. People, schmeeple. Who needs them anyway? Who needs God? I mean, I know God's good for you, and I'm sure there's a God somewhere. I don't really need God. I tried religion once. I used to go to youth group. I used to do that. God wasn't there for me. Maybe it's, you know, well, I, you know, I have my marriage was in difficulty, and I asked God to help, and he didn't, so... I, I can't trust. I don't want to go there. So it's this avoidant distancing, turning away from. We see that in churches. Churches, human systems, families develop this pattern because I'm scared of the answer. I'll get to the question, are you there for me? Will you go with me? I don't know that I can trust you, and maybe I've been let down, and so what do I do? Well, you know, you just, you just all distance yourself from each other. Ah, oh, you know. Don't expect too much from mum anymore. Don't expect too much from dad. Don't expect too much from my partner. Don't expect too much from church. People always let you down. I'm not going to risk anything. I mean, that's, that's what we do, right? Like, maybe move countries to get away from your annoying parents. Oh, sorry, I'm just talking about myself now. It's, <laughs> it's cheaper than therapy for me. I know, we do this. So, so we all do this. Right Now, of course, uh, where we get stuck sometimes in, in human systems is when you have um, an anxious demander and an avoidant distancer. <laughs> like, what happens then? <laughs> so to speak. So, you see, when I encounter God as he really is in Jesus Christ... I, I start to get free from doing that pattern 
in my human relationships because if I really connect with God, I just, my fear that I'm going to be alone starts to get addressed. So I don't have to be an anxious demander because I know God is with me. God is there for me. And neither do I have to be an avoidant distancer because God is with me. God is there for me. And so the more deeply I can experience God, as I find him on the pages of Scripture, this God that Jairus found, this God that the woman with, uh, with the bleeding found, this God who raised the little girl from the dead, if I, can, if I can find a way to experience God as accessible, as responsive, as engaged with me, that starts to give me an increasing capacity to build healthy relationships with you. And guess what the good news is? This actually works. Psychologists have done studies to show that when you investigate people's attachment to God, it correlates with the quality of their attachment to significant other people around them. Isn't that fascinating? And that's how it should be. That's why when Jesus summarized what it is to be truly human, he said what? We should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is, uh, healthily attached to God. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So it works out in the horizontal, right? If I, if I know God, I can start and love God and connect with him. That starts to transform how I live in this dimension. And guess what? It works in reverse. To the extent that I build healthy relationships here, it actually helps me experience a healthier relationship with God. So my, I would say probably my greatest spiritual struggle is that because of my family of origin, uh, I'm, my default is to be an avoidant distancer is to not believe that God will be there for me and care for me. Because my dad abandoned me and was completely unreliable and my mom was not emotionally accessible. And so for me, what is uh, both coming to know God as Father who loves me and is there for me has brought profound help and healing and helped me love others. But guess what? As I've, as I've, as I've got better at not being an avoidant distancer with others here, I've got to know more and more of God as well. Like there's this beautiful positive feedback loop that happens in our lives when we encounter this God in Jesus Christ. Uh, how can I trust God, though? Well, the extent to which God would go to be there for us is seen nowhere more clearly than on the cross. So if you think about it, God the Son in Jesus had always had a perfectly connected, intimate relationship with God the Father. You and I have always had a fractured relationship with God, right? We've messed stuff up. In psychological categories, Jesus had always had a perfect attachment to his Father up until one point in, the, in human history. There was one point in human history where God himself brought 
complete radical disconnection and a rupture of attachment into the, into the most intimate relationship of all, the Father, God the Father and God the Son. Where was that? Well, as Jesus hangs on the cross, what does he cry out? He cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is the miracle of Christianity, that God himself becomes, takes into his own being all the fractured relationships and disconnections that characterize us. And he says, I will absorb all the disconnection in the world into my being and I will, I will be fractured. I will have my, my eternal love relationship, father and son, fractured and ripped apart. Why? So that our deep need to be reconnected could be met. That in the pulling apart of the relationship between father and son, in, in, a, in a way that is a mystery to me, God says, he says, I'll take into myself the rupture between humanity and God that you and I deserve. And in exchange, I'll give you all the intimacy and the connection that you long for and that the Father and the Son have enjoyed in eternity can be ours now. There's this great exchange. God takes our disconnection and gives us, in return, eternal connection. Drawn into the very life of God, not because we deserve it, but because we need it. And he says, that's how much I love you, that I will go to that length. Now, you just think about it. You think of the terror of loneliness, the terror of disconnection. And God says, I embraced an eternity of terror and ultimate disconnection because I loved you. And I didn't want you to have to experience that. And in exchange, I will always be there for you. And I will go with you always and everywhere because I love you. So uh, I have some homework for you, and maybe we'll pass these sheets out now. It's not really homework. It's, um, it's just a little sheet that asks you a whole lot of questions for you to think about this week. Um, and there's no right or wrong answers here. There's no right or wrong answers. Yeah. Um, and I would encourage you to this week or this month or some point to use these questions as a, a way to start you thinking about your own connection with God. From your vo viewpoint, do you experience that God is accessible to you? And then there are five questions there. From your vo viewpoint, do you experience that God is responsive to you? From your point of view, do you experience your connection with God as close? Do you feel a sense of meeting and engagement? And then let's talk about these and pray about these and think about these in our small groups, in our conversations, and in our church. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love us. Fill us with a deep sense of, of being connected with you. As our children come back in, we thank you for them and I pray that our experience of being deeply connected to you might, might give us the secure, might provide for these kids a secure base for their flourishing in life. And uh, fill us with your spirit now and be with us in every part of our lives. Amen.